Glenn Kirshner is an attorney with 30 years of trial experience. For 24 of those years, he prosecuted 50 murder trials for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. Three years ago, he created for YouTube viewers a daily video analysis of Donald Trump's legal issues and indictments. He calls his podcast Justice Matters. He records his remarks from his home and has the whole family involved in the production. We wanted to ask him how he puts it all together. As you'll learn, he is not a fan of Donald Trump. Therefore, our next episode of Book Notes Plus will feature Jim Trusty, who is a former attorney for President 45. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague, Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign. It all started as a bold experiment on March 19, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress to the White House to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades. Help us keep it going. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspan.org slash donate. Thank you. Glenn Kirshner, how did you come to trying some 50 murder trials in the D.C. area? So, um, you know, growing up as what I always refer to myself as a gutter kid from Jersey, because I am a gutter kid from Jersey. My pop was a high school football coach throughout uh, New Jersey, uh, and he was also had served in the Army. And as I was growing up, I had something of an attraction to law enforcement and something of an attraction to military service. And I I managed to marry those two things when I went to college on an Army ROTC scholarship, which meant I owed the Army four years of active duty. Um, and I decided to take an educational delay in my active duty obligation, put myself through law school. And then in the 80s, I entered the Army JAG Corps. And it was a, a nice marriage of military service. And because I really was interested in working as a prosecutor, that gave me the law enforcement piece. I, I never wanted to be a police officer, but sort of prosecution and military service um, matched perfectly given my interests. And Brian, once I started working as a prosecutor in the 80s and started prosecuting court-martial cases, getting my butt kicked in the first several by far more experienced defense attorneys, um, I sort of fell in love and I knew I never wanted to leave the courtroom. So after about six and a half years of active duty, uh, I got out of the service. I transitioned to the Department of Justice and spent 24 years prosecuting cases, both federal and local, in the courts of Washington, D.C., because we have that unusual um, sort of dual jurisdiction in D.C., where the federal prosecutors do all of the traditional federal prosecuting, like the other 92 United States attorneys' offices around the country and in the territories. However, because D.C. is not a state, they don't have a district attorney's office. The federal prosecutors also do all all the local prosecuting in the Superior Court 
for the District of Columbia. Uh, I sort of found my niche and I would say my professional love, which was prosecuting murder cases, helping families through the unfathomable experience of losing a loved one to violent crime and be able to be the face of government for them that would help take them through that entire process after they lost a loved one. And I tried as many murder cases as I could get my hands on, first as a line prosecutor, then as the deputy chief of the homicide section in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, and then ultimately as chief of homicide, though even as chief, I carried an active caseload and tried cases with my junior prosecutors. When did you retire from the government? Uh, June 1st, 2018. What have you been doing since then? Interesting. That's always the tougher question to, to answer. So one of the things I, I full disclosure, uh, my brother-in-law has worked for MSNBC since its inception in the 90s in Secaucus, New Jersey. Um, he's an old school news writer and has probably trained lots of folks at MSNBC. He said, I don't have the ability to put you on TV, but I can introduce you to the folks at MSNBC and if you can talk your way on, you know, have at it. I managed to talk my way on, so I retired on June 1st. On June 2nd, MSNBC put me on a train from Union Station to Penn Station in New York, up to 30 Rockefeller Center. And they put me on air nine times in three days, which was terrifying. Even though I knew I could talk in front of a jury, I had no idea if I could talk to a camera or to a TV audience. So it was kind of sink or swim time. And I think I took on some water, but I managed to swim. And MSNBC put me under a, a contract as a legal analyst. And I've been doing that for going on six years now. Um, after a year or two of, of running my mouth on TV, as I put it, um, COVID hit and things slowed down a little bit for the legal analysts because cable news began using more and more medical analysts, as I think was certainly necessary to navigate the pandemic. And my wife and I put our heads together and decided to try to start a YouTube channel. Now, mind you, I am somebody who never really did social media for the 30 plus years I was with the federal government. So I had to learn what buttons on the computer and the phone to press to make these things happen. My wife is the one who in earnest launched the YouTube channel. She did all the technical work. And then I started sitting on my couch in my living room. I didn't even own a tripod. My wife would hold the camera, uh, the phone, and I would start uploading videos. And what I think happened, Brian, I, I don't think I'm the most captivating person, but I think what happens is YouTube sort of runs you, the content creator, through all of their analytics and decides if they think they can make money off of your YouTube channel. And if they decide they can, they begin to promote it. So when you open YouTube and you get suggested videos, my videos started popping up as suggested videos. And over the few four or so years that we've been on YouTube, um, I put up daily content, a legal analysis video, pretty much every day, seven days a week. And um, it just grew organically and with the help of the, you know, analytics wizards at at YouTube. And, you know, we're now in excess of 650,000 subscribers and we're doing about 
nine to 10 million views per month, which again, is not something I ever aspired to or expected, but it seems that the, the content must have resonated with people because I think in this day and age over the last four, five, six years, people have been desperate and frankly, anxiety filled to know what's going on on the legal landscape in a way that they can understand it and make sense of it and hopefully make their own life decisions about who they wanna vote for and what's really going on in the courts based on some content that they, they can understand and hopefully they can trust to be accurate and truthful rather than you know all of the disinformation that we get thrown at us all day every day on the internet and elsewhere. Several months ago, I found myself sitting next to you in the U.S. District Court here in Washington where a lot of these January 6th trials were held, and I started asking you questions about what you're doing, and it fascinated me that you could create something totally independent of anybody and have the kind of audience that you have. Uh, what was the trick, do you think, I mean, I, I listen to you. I watch you. I know what it sounds like. You get several hundred thousand on any given day watching you. It's bigger than a lot of cable programs. What is it that, that and I know you don't like Donald Trump. We need to talk about that eventually. But what, what do you think triggered the interest and the growth in your audience? You know, I, I think it's because the moment we're in um, where nothing is intuitive about what has gone on in our government or with respect to our rule of law our constitution our courts in the age of trump and i think part of that is a product of trump and his allies throwing so much disinformation in the mix that you don't know which way is up when you're trying to assess okay what's really going on in the prosecution in washington dc concerning Donald Trump's efforts to overturn a presidential election. What's going on in the Manhattan courtroom? What's going on in Georgia? What's going on in Florida in the documents obstruction espionage case? And I, I will say that the most frequent feedback I get, and it is heartwarming and it is energizing and it keeps me going, is when people say, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know anything about the law, but I understand when you explain the legal issue of the day. The other thing I get is, you know, my brother's a lawyer and he said, just just watch Glenn's videos. And that is incredibly energizing and motivating for me. And that I think is part of the reason I just keep at it. I mean, this may sound corny, but I was a public servant for more than 30 years. And I now feel like this is an extension of my public service or a different kind of public service. Did you prosecute in the same courtrooms that uh, we were sitting in during the different trials? I did. Uh, I tried. Um, so the largest RICO case that we ever brought in federal district court in Washington, D.C., we had to break into three separate trials because there were so many defendants. There are a lot of similarities to the Georgia RICO prosecution, at least with respect to the numbers of defendants. And so we had to break it into three trials. I did trial number two and trial number three. Some of my very good friends and colleagues did trial number one. That was the longest. That one took 12 months to litigate before Judge Lambert. And that was Tim Heafy, my friend and colleague who went on to become the chief investigative counsel for the January 6th 
House Select Committee, Amy Jeffers, who is a remarkable lawyer, former prosecutor uh, and former DOJ official, and then Matt Olson, who was a current DOJ official. That was the team for the first RICO trial. I tried the second RICO case with the likes of Judge, then my trial partner, now Judge Florence Pan, and another now retired federal prosecutor named Arvin Lal. And then I tried the third RICO trial as well with a great friend and colleague named Rachel Lieber. So, you know, we were in RICO trials for years. The second trial that, that I prosecuted was before Judge Lamberth also, who is a lion in D.C. criminal justice circles and somebody for whom I have tremendous respect. And I spent six months in trial with six RICO defendants, 11 defense attorneys, Judge Lamberth presiding. And Brian, this is back when we had the secure courtroom in federal court. You might remember it had bullet bulletproof glass separating the audience, the public from the well of the court where we would sit, where the jury would sit, the defense attorneys, the court and the court staff. Um, we had anonymous juries because there was so much witness tampering and juror tampering that the jurors were anonymous and the defendants were wearing stun belts underneath their court clothes because in the event they did something dangerous in court, the U.S. Marshals could deploy something like 100,000 volts. And we did have defendants act up in court. So those were the days when RICO cases in the courts of D.C. were a little bit too exciting from my perspective. Um, but I did try cases in that courthouse. My first love, to be honest, was across the street in Superior Court, where we tried the murders and the rapes and the conspiracies and the obstructions, carjackings, et cetera, et cetera. That's where the real hard work of justice in the District of Columbia is done. That's a remarkable bench of about 65 associate judges, all appointed by the president, which is unusual in a local court. And I, I just I, I actually miss that practice every day. Your YouTube daily. Do you call it a podcast? What do you, what? you know, I don't know if it's called a podcast. Um, <laughs> I, it, I call it my YouTube channel. And, and I think that's minimally accurate. Somebody listening to this, how hard is it for them to find it? Not hard. If you go on YouTube and just type my name in the search bar, you're going to go right to my YouTube channel. Technically, it's called Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. But for people who like audio podcasts, every day we strip the audio off the YouTube video. We drop it as an audio podcast because when I was exclusively video, I had so many people say, listen, I don't watch videos, but I listen to audio podcasts when I'm on the treadmill or walking the dog or when I'm at work. So we went about sort of duplicating what we do on YouTube, but in an audio podcast. I've got a minute of your opening uh, from back in February the 8th. And the only reason I'm going to run this is so people can hear what it sounds like every day. And what they would see on the screen are people that mostly come from MSNBC. Uh, I'm not sure what they're going to see on the screen. Well, they're going to see like Willie Geist and the people that in your in your intro. Oh, yeah. That, and, and, you know, some of the other folks that I've worked with, like Eric Swalwell, I worked on some federal legislation with his folks. And so that's kind of who you're going to see. And that's just in the background. I only point that out because people can watch it by getting on YouTube. Let's watch, Let's listen to what it sounds like when you opened up on that day. Now, friends, today was a good day for the rule of law. Now, I'm not yet prepared to say it was a good day for justice, but 
We're getting there. Let's talk about that because justice matters. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. So friends, finally, we got an opinion, a unanimous opinion from the DC Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. A president is not above the law. A president is not a king. And the president, specifically former President Donald Trump, can be prosecuted for his crimes. You mentioned earlier that you worked with the now Judge Pan. Which circuit court decision did she sit on among the three judges? Was it, was it this one we're talking about right now? It is the immunity, um, the absolute presidential immunity case that she heard. And uh, I was in the courtroom watching that argument. Um, and I believe she sat on other cases involving former President Trump, I can't remember offhand which one, um, but she was part of the three-judge panel that just resolved the absolute presidential immunity, rejected it, and now we're waiting to see if the stay will remain in place uh, or if the case is going to be returned to Judge Tanya Chutkin and we can get that one back on a trial track. Just a side question. Can you now pick up the phone and call her and ask her about a case? I'm just, these no. are all legal. You cannot. Absolutely not. I wouldn't do it. And if I tried, she wouldn't take my call. Uh, we still will see each other from time to time for coffee or for lunch. And I'm friendly with lots of the judges. Um, you know, I used to supervise Judge Pan back when she was a homicide prosecutor at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, and uh, the same holds true for Chief Judge Boesberg. I also supervised and tried murder cases with him. So, you know, there's lots of cross-pollination between the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Public Defender's Service Office in D.C., and the bench, both local and federal. So, you know, D.C. is a, a big city, but a very small town when it comes to criminal justice circles. Here is another clip from your February 14th program because it really basically telegraphs where you're coming from. Let's listen. And friends, I know it feels like Donald Trump has been playing musical chairs with his criminal cases for so long now, but the music will stop and Donald Trump will be convicted in one of his cases. Actually, Donald Trump will be convicted in more than one of his criminal cases. How do you know that? So, Brian, one of my primary responsibilities for 30 years was to assess the quality and quantity of evidence in an investigation and decide at least three things. One, did I believe there was probable cause such that I could approve an arrest warrant for a particular person for a particular crime? Because at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., the Metropolitan Police Department detectives or the FBI agents could not go to court and seek an arrest warrant unless the supervisor at the U.S. Attorney's Office had approved the application, having reviewed all the evidence in the case and concluding, yes, there was probable cause. 
That was the first assessment I had to make. The second assessment is while I'm presenting all of the evidence to the grand jury after the arrest has been made, um, sometimes before, but more often after, I had to assess at the end of the grand jury investigation and presentation, is there enough for me to ask this grand jury to vote out an indictment? There had to be probable cause. However, the Department of Justice guidelines say I had to have a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits. In other words, a good faith belief that I could prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt with admissible evidence. That was the second time I had to assess evidence. And let me tell you, each one of these decisions is deadly important and prosecutors take them deadly seriously. I always told my prosecutors, never are we more vital in our responsibilities as when we are declining to bring a charge because that's a hard decision to make because you're going to go you're going to potentially leave a perpetrator on the street you're going to have a victim or in a murder case a victim's family left without any accountability for what was done to their loved one but that is our responsibility to decline to charge a case if the evidence doesn't support the charge and i had to do that hundreds of times and then the third time is when you're presenting the case to a jury um, you're assessing the strength the quality you're making tactical decisions every minute of every day so I, I may not know much but there's one thing that i think i do know it's how to assess the strength and quality of evidence in a criminal case and decide whether there's enough to persuade a jury of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt Glenn, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a real amateur to this stuff. And so when I was sitting through a lot of those court cases over there, I kept looking at the jury saying, what's to prevent somebody eventually, if there is a Trump trial here, from just saying, I'm going to I'm going to trace this thing and I'm going to hang this jury? Yeah, there's always a risk that there might be a mole on the jury, somebody who lies under oath during jury selection, what we call voir dire because you are placed under oath as a prospective juror before you begin answering the court's questions and the questions from the parties the prosecutors and the defense attorneys in my experience having picked a lot of juries usually that oath means a lot to most people and i know that because often they are just brutally honest about for example reasons that disqualify them from sitting as jurors. Some of them will readily admit to having biases, prejudices, preconceived notions. Now, some just want to get out of jury service. But there's one story that I hold fast to as an example of how we can impanel fair and impartial juries, even in a case involving Donald Trump. And it's the Paul Manafort trial, because there was on the Paul Manafort jury, there was a self-described MAGA devotee. And it was a female juror, and we know this because she gave an, a media interview after the trial. She said, every day I drove to court, I wore my red Make America Great hat. As I was driving, I took it off, I left it in the car, I did jury service, I came back, I put my hat back on and I drove home. I am an enormous fan and supporter of Donald Trump, and by extension, I did not want to believe his campaign chairman did anything wrong or committed any crimes. but." The evidence proved Paul Manafort's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I took an oath and I voted guilty. That gives me great comfort. We can't count on everyone to behave that responsibly. But I think jury selection has a way of weeding people out 
who are intentionally trying to deceive the judge and the parties to make their way onto a jury for nefarious reasons. Um, so I trust that the judge and the parties, the prosecutors and the defense attorneys will be able to sniff out a potential mole and will be able to seat a fair and impartial jury. But here's the good news. If one juror manages to sneak on the jury and they hang the case 11 to 1 for conviction, that's what retrials are for. Jack Smith, I predict, will go to retrial after retrial as long as it takes to hold Donald Trump accountable for what he did to the American people and to our democracy. Um, I've had plenty of hung juries. I would go to a retrial more often than not. The retrial would result in a conviction, not always, but more often than not. Who decides that there's going to be a retrial? The prosecutor. Um, they will run it up the flagpole, up their supervisory chain. Um, but primarily, it's the prosecutor or the prosecutorial team that tried the case in the first instance. If you retry, do you have the same judge? Generally, you have the same judge, but not always. Sometimes judges will change calendars, will take a, a different assignment, and it doesn't have to be tried in front of the same judge, but generally it is. If you retry, do you have the same jury? Now, that sounds like a stupid question, but what, what do you have? A completely new jury? Completely new jury. It's as if the first trial never happened. Um, that's why there is no double jeopardy implication. If a case ends in a conviction or a case ends in an acquittal, a not guilty verdict, double jeopardy applies and we're done for all time with respect to that defendant on those charges. But a retrial is like it never happened because the jury couldn't resolve the case unanimously. So you go right back to square one and you start all over again. I had two missions in this uh, interview. One of them is your uh, position on the law and the Trump situation. But the other one is how you put this Justice Matters event together every day. First, uh, the, the, the slogan, Justice Matters, where did you get that idea from? A good friend of mine named Cameron. We were sitting around when uh, it was he and his wife, me and my wife, we had decided to start a YouTube channel and he is a much more creative gentleman than I am. And we were kicking around ideas and he said, uh, you know, Justice Matters has kind of a dual meeting. Uh, you're, you're talking about justice matters, matters that involve justice and the criminal justice system. And in fact, justice does matter. So I said, perfect and never looked back. And so I have to give, and I think one of the first videos I did wasn't the first one, but somewhere early on, I gave him full credit, and I have done so repeatedly over the years for coming up with the name Justice Matters. And, you know, it, it really has taken on a life of its own. I, I like to think I'm not a name dropper, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that um, Robert De Niro said, you know, I, I'm, I watch your work and, you know, one thing led to another. And just last month, he hosted a Justice Matters, Team Justice happy hour at his restaurant, La Conda Verde, up in uh, New York. And he was the host and he I got to introduce Bob De Niro. And then, he, and it, you know, it, it has led places, Brian, that again, a gutter kid from Jersey never thought he would go. So Team Justice is what? Team Justice is kind of the group that 
gravitates toward our message and our mission. There's another platform called Patreon, um, if you're familiar with that. It's where anybody can go to support creators that they're interested in supporting. And when I say support, it can be with a dollar, it can be. And if they sign up for Patreon, my Patreon page, um, they get all sorts of behind the scenes information and glimpses and they get some of the merchandise that comes with Team Justice. Um, they get a handwritten note. They get Zoom meetings where we will all talk about the legal issues of the day. That has sort of grown. It's out. We've got folks in about 14 countries now. And one of the things I do as a byproduct of that is uh, we travel around and put on Team Justice happy hours as a way to thank the people for supporting us. And we, our last one was in New York in January that Mr. De Niro wanted to host. So, again, it's taken on a real life of its own. And, you know, when I check in on it, it's somewhere between 8 and 20 minutes long. How do you decide how long each episode is going to be? It, it really depends on the topic. If I can knock out a video in six, seven, eight minutes and I think I've done it justice and haven't overstayed my welcome, I'll do that. If it's more involved, it'll go 12, 15. I think I've done a couple that were in the 20s, maybe up to 30 minutes when it was either multiple topics or something that really needed a whole bunch of explaining. And that clip that you played that we listened to, which made me cringe, one of the things I realized is I talk very slowly on my videos. I learned that as a trial lawyer, people don't absorb information at the same rate and they certainly don't absorb it if you're running through it quickly. So I do a lot of coupling and tripling of, of my thoughts and my ideas when I'm talking. And for those of you who may listen to me and be like, man, that, that guy just needs to speed up. That's like the magic of, I guess, YouTube and all of the online platforms. You can just dial up the speed and you can get through my eight minute video in four minutes and I'll probably sound like I'm talking at a normal cadence, not as slowly as I ordinarily sound to myself when I when I listen to my videos. Over 600,000 subscribers. Do you pay to be a subscriber? And who gets the money? No, you do not pay a penny. I never put anything behind a paywall. Everything is free content all the time. The way money is generated, and again, I didn't even know this when I started a YouTube channel, is um, if you get 1,000 subscribers and you have 4,000 watch hours on your videos, um, YouTube will monetize your YouTube channel. What that means is they will begin running ads on my videos. I don't choose the ads. I have nothing to do with the ads. Um, and they will they um, pay the creator, the person who's putting the content up on the channel, 55% uh, of the ad revenue and they keep 45%. I see it as completely passive. I do nothing but put the content out. The one hard and fast rule I have, and this goes for my YouTube videos, it goes for my audio podcast and anything else I do, there is always a pressure, I will let people know who are thinking about getting into this business or in this business, to do ad reads. They always, advertisers want the host to do the ad read because I guess it, it gets so much, so much more traction. I said, listen, you're never gonna hear me selling a mattress or vitamin supplements or dog food. I would rather do it for free 
then become a salesman. It might sound corny. If I'm going to sell anything, it's going to be justice and it's going to be allegiance to the rule of law. I'm not going to sell products. And that's one of the non-negotiables that I've kind of had during the time I've been in this new professional chapter two. How does it work? Because when you go to your uh, your channel, there are items, sweatshirts, bags, all this stuff with Justice Matters on it. How does that work? So when you start a YouTube channel, they give you um, uh, a, an opportunity to just sell merchandise. They do it all. And actually, one of my daughters, I have five daughters all grown now and grandkids and the whole thing. Um, one of my daughters went on my YouTube channel, activated the merchandise feature, and YouTube does the rest. So it's not like we're putting logos on sweatshirts or literally you just click a series of boxes and whoever YouTube does that business with, they create it all. They take a healthy cut of whatever gets sold off of the YouTube channel merchandise page and they send you a percentage of it. So again, it's all kind of passive. Could you live off the money you're getting from this uh, YouTube channel? You can, you can. And how often do they send you a check? They pay out once a month. Just because it's interesting, do they pay on time? <laughs> they're they're pretty uh, regimented. I, I mean, I cannot imagine how many channels they have, how much ad revenue they have coming in off of those channels. But um, it, it seems like a pretty good operation. I will say I can quibble with other platforms that um, I, I am on, you know, different platforms like Facebook has ebbed and flowed over time. And um, but YouTube is um, it's a pretty well run business, at least from what I can see. Do you get more reaction out of your YouTube channel or from N MSNBC appearances? That's a good question, because at first I thought there would be a lot of cross pollination. So people who saw me on TV like this morning, I headed into the district at 3.30 to be on way too early with John Lemire and then Morning Joe at 6. And I thought I would probably get a lot of traffic that would gravitate from MSNBC for my appearances over to the YouTube channel. Not the case. And there are people who are really into analytics. I'm not. But one of the really nice features um, about having a YouTube channel, they provide you with so much information about analytics that I can't even begin to absorb it all. But there are those who can. Someday I should consult with somebody who can and maybe I can do better, you know, what it is I am doing. But what I found is not much of the traffic comes from MSNBC or my TV appearances. There's some way to measure that in the computer world. Um, it, it, it seems like most of my traffic is organic. And what I hear from folks who drop feedback all the time, comments, is, you know, I recommended you to my brother, to my uncle, to my, you know, my teacher recommended you to me or this. And to me, it feels like it's kind of organic growth. If I, I think that's accurate, I can't swear to it. Okay, there are Glennisms. One of them would be, and you do this all the time, when you begin your Justice Matter Matters podcast, you say, hey, all, Glenn Kirshner here. 
Did you think that through when you started your your daily YouTube channel? I don't think I thought that opening through. I think it came naturally. I think what I did was sort of um, adopt lots of what I did with my juries over the years because you put me in the well of a court and let me talk to a box full of you know citizens who were there to decide a really weighty issue and just give me a couple hours and I'm in heaven. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the ham in me, the performer, I'm not sure. But I kind of the way we've been talking is the way I talk to my jurors. I like to say it's like you're sitting at a kitchen table with your friends and family. And I think I kind of adopted that approach. I'm not sure where Hey All came from. I could probably go back because, you know, once it's on YouTube, it never goes away unless you try to pull it off. But there's still an electronic footprint there. Um, and, and at some point I dropped Hey All in the beginning and it and it stuck. And now it's just habit. I've heard you talk uh, about, I mean, I've heard both political sides talk about the prejudice they think that exists because somebody is appointed by a president to be a judge, or there's a jury in Washington, D.C. where 92% of the people voted for Joe Biden. I want to play for you uh, the probably the most outspoken other side of the issue, pro-Trump voice on radio and television that you'll hear and he gets very excited and just gets your reaction to it this is somebody i know you know of mark levin let's mm -hmm. listen to mark levin for just a moment and see what you think this attorney general who pretends he's helen keller he made the decision to indict the former president and they made the decision to interfere in this election you want to talk about an insurrection this is an insurrection. The idea that this man is, isn't under a criminal investigation and that they criminalized that damn document case to go after Donald Trump is sickening. And I would say this to our fellow Americans. Don't be bamboozled by these cable channels and these fools who come on and tell you, well, he's not above the law. Are you kidding me? Democrat Attorney General in New York. Democrat prosecutor in Manhattan, Democrat prosecutor in Atlanta, Democrat attorney general in Washington, D.C. What do you mean he's not above the law? There is no law. What's going on here is a disgusting disgrace. It is war on Trump. It is war on the Republican Party. And it is a war on a republic. Mark Levin, a lawyer. He's on radio every day. He's also on Fox News. Your reaction, Glenn Kirshner. Um, I disagree with Mark Levin. Um, you know, everybody is entitled to their opinion and their view on um, the current state of affairs with respect to the four criminal prosecutions of Donald Trump. Um, I, I would say there are lots of checks and balances in the system, including grand jurors. And I spent lots of quality time in grand juries. I've had grand juries, no bill cases. In other words, vote not to indict because they weren't quite satisfied that there was adequate evidence. Um, so the grand jury is one check in the system. I don't, I don't really endorse his view that if you are an elected uh, district attorney, for example, you can't be fair. You can't fairly prosecute somebody from the other political party. Um, you have judges who can and will test the quality and quantity of 
the grand jury indictment, the legal sufficiency of it. You know, we have a 30 page ruling from Judge Juan Mershon in New York in the Trump um, 2016 election interference case. I don't call it a hush money case or a falsifying business records case because he paid hush money and falsified business records to gain unfair advantage in the 2016 presidential election. It was really his first election interference go round and he's being prosecuted for it. Donald Trump was able to make every single motion to dismiss known to the law and Judge Mershon methodically and with um, precedent supporting his conclusions um, denied each and every one and explained why under the laws of New York each motion to dismiss must be um, denied and then he set a firm trial really reaffirmed the firm trial date of March 25th you know um, I think there are people who may hold the honest belief that Donald Trump is being railroaded in four separate criminal cases in in really three jurisdictions two federal cases and two state cases um, and he's you know somehow being prosecuted up and down the eastern seaboard for purely political reasons and there's really no there there I don't think that can be an honestly held belief if you've been paying attention to the evidence of what Donald Trump has been doing and frankly the evidence that we've seen publicly reported probably accounts for less than 25 percent of the evidence that the prosecutors have available to them so you know whether it's an honestly held belief or I think there are plenty of snake oil salesmen out there who understand the value of yelling and screaming that everything is a witch hunt Donald Trump more so than anybody because the money continues to flow into his coffers unfortunately he continues to fool the gullible and I really think it's primarily the gullible that are being fooled um, so no I don't I don't really buy into that hysterical notion that this whole thing is a witch hunt or a political hit job because I've seen no evidence of that as you know if you delve into the background of all the judges and people that are involved in the prosecutors and all you'll find some interesting connections this is just one small one and I wonder how you what you think of this it, Scott McAfee the judge in Fulton County which we've been watching this week used to work for Fonnie Willis and she was on the stand and he then has to make a decision on whether or not she can continue as prosecutor how do you think overall people do when there's these kind of conflicts I think most judges and prosecutors and frankly defense attorneys take motions to recuse deadly seriously and if the parties believe that a particular judge should remove himself or herself from presiding over a case those motions will be made it will be hashed out in the harsh light of day in a courtroom it will be subject to appellate review and i think the system by and large works you know the federal standard for when a judge must recuse from a case is when there is a reasonable possibility that's a very low standard a reasonable possibility that their impartiality might be questioned and you know we can talk about I, I don't know as much about the relationship and the overlap between um, Judge Mc, uh, McAfee and 
District Attorney Willis. Obviously, we've talked about recusal issues quite a bit with respect to Judge Cannon down in Florida in the classified documents case. Um, there's been no motion to recuse made by Jack Smith. I assume that's because he ultimately finds there's insufficient evidence to move for her recusal. I don't know that I agree with that. But here, here is how I have gauged for, and I think Judge McAfee is reportedly a member or former member of the Federalist Society, which tends to cut a certain way politically and ideologically. I've watched him many, many times. The way he um, performs in court, the decisions he makes, his decorum, his civility, his control of the courtroom. Um, I can't really see him having engaged in any missteps. I think he is proving himself to be a fine jurist and somebody who's up to the task. Um, but in a politically charged case, you're always going to have somebody sniping from one side or another, or maybe both sides, sniping and claiming that these things are political. In my experience in 30 years now, I didn't handle a lot of political cases. I handled lots of violent crime cases. Um, I just didn't see a lot of politics coming into what it is that prosecutors do generally. So, um, but I think it's it's a fair, it's these are fair concerns to discuss, whether there is something that would undermine confidence in the in the system or in the result that's reached because there might be some relationships relationships between or among participants in a trial just an aside judge uh, mcafee was appointed to several jobs down in uh, georgia by the current governor kemp who was i mean that whole georgia operation opposed donald trump in the controversy that's going on down there I want to move back into we are a television and a radio network here and i want to go back to the details of how you do your podcasts and your uh your uh, youtube uh every day what time of day i when i when i look in on you and I get up really early in the morning. I look on, in on you. It's eight hours ago that uh, <clears throat> you put this all together, which usually takes me to the late, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night. When what's your deadline to put this together so you have it out every day? Yeah, one of the things that I have not been able to do is stick with a deadline <laughs> or um, upload my videos, you know, within a one hour or two hour window consistently every day. Um, and part of that is because, you know, I have I am beholden to MSNBC. So when they call, I jump on and I have to adjust my schedule. I also teach criminal justice at George Washington University. That takes up a good bit of my time. But I can tell you generally, you know, I'll get up at six and begin to check the news to see what is the legal issue of the day or what developed, you know, overnight or yesterday that I know people are going to want to um, learn about and have explained to them. Um, so I will read everything I can read about that particular topic. I will then rough out an outline on my legal pads, which surround me at all times. Um, I will then transfer it from my legal pad onto my dry erase whiteboard. I only touch computers when I have to. Um, I'll then practice it a few times before I begin recording on my phone. Um, I will usually record it in a series of maybe two or three minute bursts because early on i tried to do one eight ten twelve minute stream without making mistakes i couldn't so now i'll do two three minute bursts and then i'll edit it myself 
after I'm done recording, I will then um, I, I edit it myself on the most basic computer editing program, iMovie on, on the Mac. It's the only one I know how to use and my wife taught me how to use it. Um, I will then upload it onto YouTube. I will post it across several platforms and then I'll call it a day. I would say the process, if I could do it uninterrupted from start to finish, the process would probably take me somewhere between three and six hours. But I sort of do it sporadically over the course of the day. Interestingly, you can look at analytics and see what is the optimal time to post one of my videos? When is my audience kind of center mass? But I miss that mark all the time. It, it tends to be between about 4 and 6 p.m. Sometimes if I'm lucky, I'll post at 2 p.m. I'm not often lucky, so I'm posting at 8 or 9 or 10 p.m. because that's just when I've had an opportunity to get through all of those tasks. I have to go back to, you really do this on your iPhone? The actual, you do. And, I do. And does anybody else work with you at all? My what, wife. And what? Tell us something about your wife. Tell us, give us some background on her and why. What does she do working this project with you? How much time do you have? I can talk <laughs> about her forever. So she is a a fairly recently retired immigration lawyer, um, and uh, she is now kind of the other half of Justice Matters and Team Justice, and we just kind of. Uh, have a full partnership working this effort every day, getting the content out. Um, she is uh, an incredibly special person, a story that I have to tell. It's only 30 seconds, and she hates when I tell it, but she's not within arm's reach now. So when the first Muslim travel ban hit, we don't live far from Dulles Airport. And she said, not on my watch. And she got in the car and she drove to the airport. And the people who took off in those planes and they were legal. I don't like the terms legal and illegal, but they had done everything this country asked them to do. And they had whatever status they had by following the rules that we set for them. And then they landed and they were illegal. And my wife said, not on my watch. And she went <clears throat> out to the airport to do whatever she could. Um, that's That sums up who she is. And that's why she's like the perfect partner in our Justice Matters mission. Um, she does like she'll do some of the research online. I am forever saying I need to know what time the court appearance is starting in Florida. And, and so she's always jumping into the breach and helping me with information. She also knows the technical end of things. She knows the bookkeeping. So it's just really the two of us who produce this content every day. You're going to know where I'm going with this when I mention books. Tom Wolfe's Right Stuff, Don Barden's The Next Right Thing, <laughs> Castle Freeman's Go With Me, uh, Ryan Riley's Sedition Hunters, Tim Snyder's On Tyranny. I could go on, and as a viewer, when I see that, I see it over your right shoulder, sitting on a desk. They change all the time. And on top of that, I'm guessing that's John Marshall. Abe Lincoln. Really? Because there's a John yeah. Marshall statue, as you know, that looks somewhat like that. That's Abe Lincoln. Okay. It Abe is. Lincoln sits there. You First, why do you change him? Is there a message? Secondly, why did you tilt Abe Lincoln over on his side recently? Uh, you, you, you have a great attention to detail, Brian. So, first of all, the books are um, kind of little Easter eggs. I try to have the title of the book or the message of the book um, have some loose association with the topic 
of the day. I don't always succeed in that. Um, the only time that I ever tilted Abe Lincoln on the side was the day I discussed the Supreme Court argument that we all recently heard on whether Donald Trump is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment for having engaged in insurrection. I actually live streamed that with my criminal justice students at GW because I was in class at the time and I was at a loss. I was at a loss to explain how this is going to sound. I, I, I am not half as smart as anybody on that bench and I have great respect for the institution, but how they could get lost in the details over democracy. They paid attention to details over democracy. I don't refer to the Constitution as details, just like I never said if I lost the case because a police officer, for example, violated a defendant's Fourth Amendment right against an unreasonable search and seizure and evidence got suppressed. That's not a detail. That's not a technicality. That's a constitutional principle. But when I listen to those justices get bogged down in the details over democracy, and when you look at the plain text of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and the history of it, and the definitive ruling by a judge after a trial on the merits in Colorado, as affirmed by a state Supreme Court, that he engaged in insurrection, which we saw with our own eyes, how can they get so bogged down in the details over our democracy? And Abe Lincoln fell over on his side in distress. We're running out of time, but I do want to have you explain something that happened last August at the Charlie Palmer restaurant. And I watched the, the video the next day, I think, uh, and people are going to hear some remarks in here by Frank Fleglusi, who they may see on MSNBC, Pete Dominic, the con the uh, comedian, uh, Kim Whaley, Allison Gill, I can mention others. But this is a, a, just a little bit of the, the noise in the room and uh, what it sounded like, and then I want you to tell us what it was. Here's, um, here's August 26, two, 2023 at Charlie Palmer's Restaurant, which is just down the street from where I'm sitting right now. Turn away from all the lies From the wolves and sheep's disguise Justice matters This is not politics for me. This is an existential threat to our nation's security. It, it's, it's that simple and it's also that grave. This year, we realized that America still does care about justice and justice does matters. And here we are with four indictments you don't need to be a constitutional law professor we are not an unlimited monarchy full stop we are not we still have work to do and it is all of our jobs to continue to protect democracy and donald trump deserves a fair trial right Glenn, a fair conviction and a fair life in prison <laughs> it's a government by the people and for the people and just don't forget that because it's going to get harder. And my hope and dream for you is that as we work hard for democracy, for ourselves, for our family, we will get through this and we will do better and dream much bigger for our kids. Unusual allies, right? Would have thought a guy like me be speaking in front of this room right here. Like, this is nuts. But it's necessary. Harry Dunn, I think was the last voice there, who 
was a policeman, Capitol Hill policeman, uh, and wrote a book and is now running for Congress over in Maryland. Uh, tell us about that evening and how did you put that video together so quickly? So um, I, what we do is we crowdsource justice. And um, I mentioned that we have folks who support us on Patreon. So, you know, the average person who supports us, it's, it's maybe $5 a month. They can do it one month. They can do it every month for as long as they like. And I feel responsible to give back and to thank them. And so what I do is each year, that was our third annual Team Justice gathering at Charlie Palmer. We commandeer Charlie Palmer. Mike Irving is a retired homicide detective, was somebody I worked with for years. He's the general manager. And we just take over. And um, the whole thing is on me as a way to thank the members of Team Justice who support our all volunteer efforts here. So, you know, we do dinner, we do open bar, we do a whole slate of guest speakers who are each one in their own way, a democracy warrior. You know, we have uh, the Capitol Police officer heroes like Harry Dunn. We've had Mike Fanone, who I used to work murder cases with back in the day, and um, Daniel Hodges and Aquilino Gonell and um, and all of the other the guest speakers, some of whom you highlighted. And we are all in this fight for the same reason, for the same cause. It's about democracy. It's about the rule of law. It's not about politics. I grew up in a conservative household. Um, we didn't really do politics, but I think we were more conservative leaning than we were liberal leaning. Um, but none of this for me is about politics. I don't care if you have an R or a D or an I after your name or no letter at all. I've you know never really had a letter that I associated myself with. And yet I get called all sorts of names now because I'm always criticizing folks who break the law. And I don't care if you're Bob Menendez or you're, um, who is that fabulist, uh, the one who just got indicted for George uh, uh, Santos. I, I don't care what your party affiliation is. If you violate the rule of law, these are laws that have been enacted by us, the people. We vote for our elected representatives. They go to Washington where they go to our you know, capital, our state capital. They enact the laws that we want them to enact. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. And then if you violate our laws, you need to be held accountable. And not just if you snatch a purse or you sell a rock of crack, but if you're doing enormous damage to large swaths of the population, as has Donald Trump and many of his associates, his criminal associates, who are now his co-defendants down in Georgia, like Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows and Sidney Powell and Jeffrey Clark, who weaponized and corrupted DOJ's mission, which is a special kind of sin in my book. You need to be held accountable by us. And we see team justice. And so these are also folks who will help me with research projects and pro-democracy projects. We've sent letters to all 50 state attorneys general a few years ago, urging them to consider opening investigations into avoidable COVID deaths, because as an old homicide prosecutor, I believe there are elements of a low level of homicide that could be satisfied when a president of the United States lies about a deadly pandemic and puts people in harm's way. We, we do lots of pro-democracy projects. We're working on a modification to the federal oath of office adding 22 words so that everybody, everybody is a mandatory reporter of crime and corruption inside the federal government so we can do away with the whistleblower problem that we have because 
even when somebody does blow the whistle, they're instantly retaliated against, like the Colonel Vinmans. So all of these people, a lot of them are retired professionals or active professionals. Everybody has their own little piece of expertise. They all have good ideas. And I feel like we kind of crowdsource justice. And that's and and team justice and our annual gathering at Charlie Palmer has sort of grown out of that. We try to do both sides and we are going to have Jim Trusty on in a podcast soon. Um, do you know him? I don't know him personally. No, he, he was an attorney for uh, Donald Trump and try to get uh, from that point of view. I, to end this, I do want to read you four words that seem to me. And if you watch you on your Justice Matters, you can get a very clear idea of where you're coming from when it comes to Donald Trump. And in one of your previous uh, programs, you said this this simple four words, and I don't remember what the case was. You said Donald Trump is done. Why do you think that? It's based on my assessment of the evidence against him. You know, as but one quick example, um, you know, people might not know much about the rules of evidence that apply at a criminal trial, but everything you hear Donald Trump say on his social media platform, in media interviews, in his hallway lies session, I'm sorry, but that's what they are when he leaves the courtroom and then tends to lie about what just went on in that courtroom like up in New York. None of that that comes out of his mouth about it being a rigged election, him actually winning, him being able to telepathically declassify documents with his mind, the Presidential Records Act letting him do what he wants with classified information. None of that is admissible in a court of law. And it will not see the inside of a court of law. What is admissible is anything that comes out of his mouth that's incriminating under a rule of evidence called statement of a party opponent. And Jack Smith can introduce every incriminating word and Donald Trump and his lawyers can introduce not a single exculpatory word, whether false or true, because that's the way the rules of evidence are set up. And what I've been saying is when you look at Donald Trump's unabated string of losses in his civil cases, E. Jean Carroll 1, E. Jean Carroll 2, New York civil fraud trial, um, that is powerful foreshadowing for what's going to happen once he is in his criminal cases, but it's going to go much worse for him. Um, and that's why I say he's done. A couple of very quick questions. If, and you, you can't tell at this stage what's going to happen for sure, but if he ever gets in Judge Chutkin's court, D.C. Uh, Circuit Court, I mean, uh, District Court here in Washington, and found guilty, would she put him in jail? I, I can't. I can't answer for her, but you know, I will say I believe, having tried murder cases against Tanya Chutkin many years ago when she was a public defender in the courts of D.C., uh, I believe she understands the need to both punish and deter this kind of conduct when the next aspiring dictator tries to engage in it. I think she will sentence him to prison, and I don't believe for a minute she will leave him on release pending appeal. I do think he will go to prison ultimately. And one beef I have with the system right now is that there is a two-tiered system. There is a system for the privileged and the powerful, what I call the ruling class criminals, and a system for everyone else. Because if Donald Trump was any other human being in the United States, and he was on release in four felony prosecutions, 
and there was clear and convincing evidence he was a danger to the, to society or a single person in the community or that he's a flight risk, he would be in pretrial detention. Anybody but Donald Trump would be in pretrial detention right now. And that is a failing of the system because we have catered to him in a way that is unhealthy for the rule of law and for our criminal justice system and ultimately for our democracy. Glenn Kirshner, I have a lot more questions for you. I'll have to bump into you over in the court to find out the rest of them. But thank you very much for helping us understand how you put all this together. And if people want to see you, obviously on MSNBC, but they can also see you on YouTube almost every day. Uh, and you can find it under Justice Matters and Glenn Kirshner. And I thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Booknotes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Booknotes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.